to chapter 171 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. Three weeks ago, we saw how the Balfour Government's Education Act of 1902 had alienated Protestant dissenters. That provided the Liberal Party, heavily dependent on dissenter votes, with a great issue to overcome their divisions, most recently on the Boer War, and concentrate their fire on the government. Last week, we talked about the controversy over tariff reform. This highly contentious proposal was to protect British industry and agriculture by a system of tariffs, duties, applied on imports from abroad. It would be coupled with imperial preference, granting tariff exemptions to colonies to pull the empire closer together. The row over tariffs had led to the formation of two organisations among unionists, that is, the Conservatives and the Liberal Unionists, who were then in government. The Tariff Reform League backed the policy of setting up trade barriers, while the Free Food League, committed to the 60-year-old doctrine of free trade, was fiercely opposed. In particular, it rejected the idea of imposing tariffs on food, which would increase basic living costs, disproportionately harming the poor. The main figure in the Tariff Reform League was Joseph Chamberlain, though trying to keep a low profile, he didn't take the leadership himself. Funnily enough, the president of the Free Food League was the Duke of Devonshire. We talked about him back in Chapter 144 when he was called Lord Hartington and had joined with the same Joseph Chamberlain in 1886 to lead opponents of Irish home rule out of the Liberal Party to set up the Liberal Unionists. Now the two men were on opposite sides of the next debate, as divisive for the Unionists as Home Rule had been for the Liberals. The Duke was a keen proponent of free trade, while Chamberlain was committed to tariff reform, or what was often called fair trade, fair in the sense that it would allow Britain to retaliate to other nations' tariffs by applying its own. The Tariff Reform League was by far the bigger and better funded of the two organisations within the Unionist camp. Tariff reform was increasingly the mainstream stance of most Conservatives. Only a minority of the party's MPs backed free food, leading some to wonder whether they were in the right party. Taking that reasoning to its logical conclusion, 11 Tory MPs ultimately crossed the floor of the House, as the saying has it. In other words, they changed party, moving from the benches on the government side of the House of Commons to those on the opposition side. The most spectacular of these defections was that of the master of spectacular gestures, Winston Churchill. On the 31st of May 1904, he entered the House of Commons chamber, paused a moment, and then turned to the opposition side, heading for a seat next to the great Welsh radical, David Lloyd George. The young Conservative MP of less than four years' standing was now a Liberal. Was Churchill's act simply opportunistic, abandoning a Conservative party in sharp decline for a Liberal party apparently poised to take power? I used to wonder that myself. Now, though, I think such a judgment is too harsh. Already back in 1897, when he was firmly in the Conservative party, he had this to say of two leading Tories. Among the leaders of the Tory party are two whom I despise and detest as politicians above all others, Mr Balfour and George Curzon. 
the one, a languid, lazy, lackadaisical cynic, the unmonumental figurehead of the Conservative Party. The other, the spoiled darling of politics, blown with conceit, insolent from undeserved success. Later that same year, he wrote of his own political position, I am a liberal in all but name. Were it not for home rule, to which I will never consent, I would enter Parliament as a liberal. As it is, Tory democracy will have to be the standard under which I shall range myself. Tory democracy was the banner under which his father, Lord Randolph, had campaigned, though, as we saw when we talked about him, ideologically he was capable of some drastic changes, of course. The son seems to have been far steadier in his views, and they were reinforced when the elder statesman of the Liberal Party, John Morley, recommended a book to him as early as in December 1901, a book which Churchill mentioned when he spoke in Blackpool the following month. I have been reading a book which has fairly made my hair stand on end, written by a Mr. Roundtree, who deals with poverty in the town of York. It is found that the poverty of the people of that city extends to nearly one-fifth of the population. We've already come across Seaboam Roundtree's study of poverty in York, and Churchill was not unusual in being shocked by its findings. On the other hand, feeling that way was perhaps rather more unusual in the ranks of the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Overall, it feels to me as though he had always been a semi-detached member of the Conservative Party. He was at odds with it on several major issues. In that light, it's not hard to see that his differences, as a convinced free trader, with the increasingly protectionist line of his colleagues, moved him quite genuinely and sincerely into switching his allegiance to the Liberal Party. That's not to say that he didn't boost his career by crossing the House. Both Churchill and another of the defecting MPs, John Seeley, enjoyed successful ministerial careers in the Liberal Party. When the eleven defections took place, they further deepened the gloom affecting the Conservative Party. The Liberals, on the other hand, were more united than they'd been for a generation. What's more, as we saw last week, an impertinent newcomer was beginning to flex its muscles on the political scene, Keir Hardy's Labour Representation Committee, the LRC. That too darkened Tory prospects. The Liberals were anything but complacent, however. Apart from the single unsatisfactory win in 1892, giving them barely three years in office, they hadn't won an election since 1886. They felt the urgent need to do all they could to shore up their chances next time around. Driven by that concern, they sent their chief whip, the man in charge of party discipline in the Commons, Herbert Gladstone, yes, the son of the late Prime Minister William Gladstone, to negotiate with the secretary of the LRC, a rising figure of the movement, Ramsay MacDonald. The aim of the negotiations was to minimise splits in the anti-Tory votes between the Liberals and the LRC. By doing that, did the agreement between them, the Gladstone-MacDonald Pact, strengthen the Liberals' chances? Or was it a disaster for their party, opening the door to a third party that would soon eclipse them? Or, finally... Was that eclipse inevitable anyway? Together we'll follow the evolution of the two parties over the coming episodes, and I hope that will put you in a position to reach your own judgment. What the pact did was to establish that in 31 constituencies where the LRC was positioned to defeat the Tories, the Liberals would put up no candidate. 
That would give the LRC a clear run and ensure that the Tory wasn't elected thanks to a split vote for the opposition. The negotiations for the pact took place in January 1903. The Balfour government would last nearly two years more. In the dying weeks of 1905, however, with internal divisions amongst unionists becoming increasingly unbearable and, above all, uncontrollable, Balfour decided he'd had enough. On the 4th of December 1905, he tendered his and his government's resignation to the king. However, he didn't ask for Parliament to be dissolved, leading to a general election. Instead, he allowed a minority government to form under the premiership of the Liberal leader, Henry Campbell Bannerman. It seems that he was rather hoping that, once in office, the Liberals would be unable to prevent their own divisions re-emerging, damaging their chances when an election was eventually held. That, however, didn't happen. Campbell Bannerman allowed it no time in any case. He went for a dissolution almost as soon as he formed his government. The election was held in January 1906. It was a disaster for the Conservatives. It was a colossal triumph for the Liberals. They won with a landslide, taking 397 seats, up 214 from the previous election and giving them an absolute majority in the 670-seat House of Commons. The Conservatives and Liberal Unionists, soon to merge into a single organisation, the Conservative and Unionist Party, the official name of what most of us call the Conservative Party, right down to today, were down 246 seats to just 156. Even Balfour, so recently Prime Minister, lost his own parliamentary seat. It was an electoral disaster of historic magnitude. And what about the Labour Representation Committee? The Gladstone MacDonald Pact worked like a charm. The LRC won 29 seats, 24 of them in the 31 constituencies covered by the pact. The new kid on the block was becoming a real force. As for the Liberals, they had plenty to celebrate. The victory must have been especially welcome after so long in the political wilderness. At last, the nearly unbroken Tory rule of 20 years had been decisively ended and they'd recaptured the office which, for so long in the previous century, had seemed to be no more than their entitlement. It was just as well they were enjoying the present. Although they didn't know it, the future would be far grimmer. they just had their last landslide election win. Within a few years, they would have their last election wins of any kind. And they were just embarking on their last period in government on their own, rather than as a partner, usually a junior partner, in a coalition. We'll be going into all that in coming episodes. However, before we wrap up this one, let's talk about a small matter, apparently trivial, except for what it says about that peculiar beast, the British Constitution. On the 4th of December 1905, the very day Balfour resigned, King Edward VII graciously announced, in a decision given publicity in the London Gazette of the next day, Know ye that in the exercise of our royal prerogative, we do hereby declare our royal will and pleasure, that in all times hereafter the Prime Minister of us, our heirs and successors, shall have place and precedence next after the Archbishop of York. The Prime Minister was to be treated as next in importance among the important people of the kingdom 
immediately after the Archbishop of York. Officially. And it's that word officially that matters, because that was the first time the title of Prime Minister, initially as we've seen a term of abuse in the 18th century, then used unofficially from that century until the early 20th, was officially recognised in a government document of the United Kingdom. That didn't mean it would attract a salary, however. Oh no, it was still unpaid. You may remember that Lord Salisbury had been Foreign Secretary as well as Prime Minister. When his nephew Arthur Balfour persuaded him to step down from the second job on the grounds that it was far too much of a burden for his advanced age, he insisted on taking another position as Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal, a role that was important in the Middle Ages but had virtually no duties by the time Salisbury took it. However, it was a paid position and Salisbury, wealthy though he was, saw no reason why he should do the Prime Minister's job for no pay at all. For the same reason, most Prime Ministers in the 19th century took the secondary title of First Lord of the Treasury, which attracted a salary. That had once been the senior financial position in government, but over time real responsibility for government finance had been increasingly taken on by the Second Lord of the Treasury, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. In most countries, that role carries the title of finance minister. The term exchequer was derived from the use of a table laid out in the pattern of a chessboard, an échiquier in French, used for accounting. With the chancellor handling finances, the title of first lord simply became an honorific. It has been held by every prime minister from Balfour onwards, right down to the current incumbent, Rishi Sunak. One other benefit of being First Lord of the Treasury is that the role has an official residence, which is Number 10 Downing Street. The Prime Minister only lives there thanks to holding that secondary title. However, since the Ministers of the Crown Act of 1937, the post of Prime Minister has attracted a salary of its own, so holders don't have to be paid as First Lord of the Treasury. This is just an anecdote, I know, but it's amusing, and it underlines how the British Constitution grew by slow evolution, not through a carefully planned and designed project of law. That gives British constitutional law and practice their strange quirks. These are sometimes fun. Occasionally, they're far more worrying. As we shall see. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 